BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, Heard Tell Show. We've missed you. Welcome back. Glad to have you. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. As we do what we always try to do here, we try to turn down the noise of a very noisy news cycle, get to the information that matters, discuss it, not yelling, cut through all that caterwauling, and try our best to get to the information we need to discern the times we live in a little bit better. We're going to go through the GOP primary field in a little bit. We've put together a little something for that uh, based off the polling numbers that are going to go into who does and does not get into the debate stage. Just Straight opinion, our analysis, what we honestly think of all these candidates. Uh, that's coming up in a minute. Our guest today, the great Eric Garcia, good friend of the program, been on many, many times, congressional reporter for The Independent. He's also an MSNBC columnist. Going to talk about the ins and outs of what's going on in Congress because he's there every day. He's in the halls. He talks to him. Great insight from our buddy Eric Garcia here in a little bit. Also going to go over to India, talk about the elections going on over there because it's important. It's an important country and we need to get ourselves familiar with the world's largest democracy, which is about to become the world's most populated country if it hasn't already. Also going to end on a good note, talk about a charity donation that went wrong. And then because people found out it went wrong and they had to fix it, multiplied uh, how much funds this great charity guy. We'll talk about that in a little bit. First, though, I want to start talking about media. Now, I'm guilty of it, too. Uh, just saying the media is unhelpful because it's too big of a term. Even news media, which is more specific, doesn't always convey because there's there's broadcast journalism, there's print journalism, there's news radio, there's investigatory. See, that's a really big word. I got to practice that. Investigatory reporting where you go and you immerse yourself for weeks or months or longer into a story. And then there's just writing captions for stuff. All of that falls under journalism and media, but it all means different things. I got to thinking about this over the weekend uh, because two different things have happened that became really big news media stories, but they're really cultural stories, but they play well in media and get a lot of attention. One is the Barbie movie. Uh, folks are, of course, and it's the usual suspects, panicking because the Barbie movie is, quote unquote, too woke or it's anti-man or it's not family friendly or whatever, whatever, whatever. The other side of the spectrum, a bunch of people got to talking about a Jason Aldean song and the lyrics and the video and all that went to it. Here's the problem. 
Both of those stories, though, on opposite side of the spectrums for the outrage machine have the same effect. Both sides talk about it because they pick their sides, mount their ramparts and start throwing things at each other. These are cut and paste stories, though. Just just think about it for a second, okay? Whether it's Jason Aldean or Barbie or whatever the last outrage du jour was, these are cut and paste stories. You take whatever just happened, you plug it into a narrative you used a hundred times, whether it was for Barbie or Jason Aldean or the National Anthem or pick anything, Bud Light. Pick your thing because these stories are the same stories. You just change the nouns on them of who the particulars are and you put it out there. Now, is that really journalism? Is that really news media? You could argue it. Mostly it's just for the outrage machine. I want to show you something from three different stories from three very different parts of the country. Just saying that journalism is bad or news media is bad is not accurate because there's a lot of really good journalists out there. We're going to talk to Eric Garcia about this on the program today. It's our responsibility. We can a la carte follow good journalists and good organizations. If you got it, there's good journalists that may work for an organization that has some not good journalists, but you can follow the good ones. You can find out what's going on when something's happened. You can look up the local reporting, which is usually more insightful than the national media, which is just coming in and trying to figure out and moving on. A couple examples of this. Stanford University, a prestigious institutions in the groves of academe, right? Recently had to force out their president. He had to resign. But when you look into what happened with that story and what happened was just nutshell, and we're going to put all the links to these stories I'm getting ready to tell you on the Substack. You can go in there and look at them. Also, will be in the notes uh, if you're using any of the platforms other than iTunes. He falsified some of his research data. He embellished some things. He lied. He cheated a little bit here. That story was not broken by ABC or CNN. It was broken by the Stanford Daily, the university's student-run paper. Then freshman Theo Baker actually got a George Polk Award for breaking that story. They went through, they found out about it, and now here we are a few years later, and the president has been forced out of that university. University presidents, especially at somewhere like Stanford, are very, very powerful people. That's good journalism. Let's go down to Atlanta. Our friend uh, Donnell Suggs, been on this program before. Hope to get him on again. Uh, editor of the Atlanta Voice, a traditional black newspaper in Atlanta, Georgia. He's covering a story of an apartment complex where the folks got their water shut off. And then the code enforcement, because of the rules of that city, the code enforcement showed up and said, well, there's no water. You all have to evacuate by 5 p.m. today. This is in the middle of the morning. You can imagine the panic that ensued for the hundreds of people that lived there. And what it was, was the owner of the apartment complex claimed there was a whole lot of back due rent, which was probably true to some extent, but the owner hadn't paid any water bills. Now he blamed the back due rent. They went, they paid it enough to get the water turned back on. The crisis was averted, at least for now. But one thing following Donnell on social media was he was like, this is happening in Atlanta, Georgia, one of the biggest media markets in the country, one of the fastest growing cities in the country. And there was no other press there except him physically standing there watching this and tweeting about it and doing a write-up for his paper about it. Good journalism. Let's go to West Virginia. Kyle Vass um, writes for the Dragline. He's a reporter for the ACLU, does a lot of investigatory journalism stuff. 
He was covering the Sternwheel Regatta. That's the big 4th of July festival in downtown Charleston. This is the second year since they've brought it back. It's been extremely successful. Downtown Charleston, they've done a pretty good job in a lot of areas of revitalizing it. It's a big deal, and they were showing the city off. But just walking around, Kyle started to notice that the usual suspects of folks that are unsheltered or homeless or whatever their situation are, those folks weren't around. And somebody, one of them came up and said, hey, we can't find these people. He did some digging. He did some shoe leather reporting. Come to find out, 16 of them got arrested and thrown in jail over a long weekend, a long holiday weekend, purposefully by the city because they knew they would have to be sitting in detention before they could get a hearing first of the week. And that would get them out of sight, out of mind for all the tourists and other people downtown enjoying the festivities. Now, that's a gross misuse of the justice system and folks' civil rights. There's more involved in that where the judge canceled the Thursday court just to make sure they sat in jail all weekend before they could get a bond hearing. I'm going to link to it. You can cover that. I actually wrote about that in the Fayette Tribune, the local paper in West Virginia that I get a chance to write a column for. We'll link to all that. But the overall point is there's three examples spreading the entire country from the West Coast, from Atlanta, Georgia, to the mountains of West Virginia of reporters doing good work. So instead of getting outraged over Jason Aldean or Barbie or whatever the next outrage du jour, which is going to be the exact same story as those two stories, they're just going to change the nouns and put it out. And it's going to be to feed the outrage machine to get people for and against talking about it and sharing it and obsessing on it. Or you just jump on that stuff. Make sure your social media, make sure your reading list, however you consume your media, your YouTube channel, TikTok, whatever, make sure you're following good journalists. It's important. Your perspective depends on having a nice wide funnel before it gets down to you. And if you aren't letting good people, maybe even people you disagree with on a lot of stuff. Look, if it's an investigatory journalist going in to find out that the governor was, you know, doing something bad or the president was doing something bad or this congressperson, I really don't care about their political persuasion as long as the facts are accurate. Right. Follow good people that do good work in journalism because it'll make you a better consumer of the news, which will make you a better citizen of the news, which will make you a better advocate for the things that you care about. Don't get wrapped up in these silly culture war fights that when you really dig into them are the exact same fights you had three weeks ago, three months ago, and three years ago. And realize that if you're doing the same thing over and over again, you are now in the insanity zone because nothing's going to change and you're not going to accomplish anything. Good media also depends on us, the consumers, making sure that we consume the good stuff so that that gets ratings and clicks too. So just want to throw that out there because we talk about turning down the noise of the news media. Part of the way you do that is by showing them what you will and will not consume. Follow good reporters. Be careful just throwing around that media term that they're all evil, wicked, horrible people. They're not. There are some, but not all of them. A lot of good folks out there doing good work. We're going to try to highlight them on this program. And you, yes, you, are in charge of what you consume news-wise. Do a better job of it. We all can. More Hurtel, right after this.
All right, as promised, we're going to go through the 2024 GOP primary field as it exists polling-wise, and we're going to use the morning consult poll because that's the first poll that actually goes towards qualifying folks for the August 1st debate, which, by the way, Trump says he's going to skip. We'll see if he really does that. We're going to go through these. I did a full write-up on these in Ordinary-Times.com, but real quick, my honest opinion, just analysis, where I think each of these candidates are. We're going to go in reverse order, and here we go. 2024 Republican primary field. Will Hurd, 0%. Will Hurd is somebody I really want involved in politics and would like to see in our government service. He's got a background in intelligence and the CIA. He's a former congressman, really sharp guy, really introspective. He probably has no business running for president. He's doing this for reasons of his own. I'm sure he has a couple issues he wants to get out there. He has no chance. He's polling at zero. I want him in government. I don't want him as the president right now, although I'm pretty sure he could do a better job than most of the other people on this list. He's just not going to get it done in this cycle. Francis Suarez, 0%. So the mayor of Miami has jumped on board to the campaign, and everybody's big question was, why? Was this attention-seeking? Is this for higher office? He has some problems at home, especially investigatory-wise. If you go and dig into all that, you can do that on your own time. However, no, he's not going anywhere in this race. Probably not even going to make a debate, but there he is at 0%. See what happens with it. Doe Burgum, 0%. All right, governor up in the Dakotas. Now, obviously, it's interesting he wants to push things like energy and economy and things like that because there's been a bit of a boom and a bust cycle up there. You had the fracking boom and then it tails off, things like this. He's wanting to get special issues out. He's probably wanting to raise his profile. Not sure what his plans are for after he's governor, but however, here he is. He's at 0% as well. He's also probably not going to make the stage, and we'll see what happens with him. Someone else, 1%. Yes, that's right. Someone else is polling higher than the first three poor schmucks that are on this list. Look, if you're polling less than someone else, you should just not be in this race at all. And there's other polling. There's people that, you know... I would vote for anybody else. I would vote for a generic Republican over some of these people. I would vote for a debilitating gastrointestinal disease above these people. Look, these lower people, they're just not going to break out. They're here for their own reasons, and that's fine. That's part of the game. They're allowed to do it. But we don't have to pretend like they're serious candidates that have a chance when they do not. Asa Hutchinson, 1%. Speaking of candidates that do not have a chance, Aza Hutchinson is running for a GOP nomination for a party that no longer exists. Pre-Trump, he would have been a pretty decent candidate, although he's not particularly charismatic. He was a pretty good governor and effective in Arkansas in a lot of ways by most measurables. And he's pretty center-right on most issues. Way too much for the current Republican Party that overwhelmingly wants Donald Trump. We'll get to that in a minute. But no, Asa Hutchinson is not wanted by his own party, and it's reflective in the poll numbers. Chris Christie, 3%. Chris Christie is not running for president. He knows he's not going to get that. He's running for a new media contract. He gave up his old media contract when he declared as a candidate. He was getting about 400 k a year from ABC. Not knocking it. Everybody's allowed to have a living. Capitalism, knock yourself out, Chris, but don't pretend like you're doing anything other than image rehab here. Those pictures of him endorsing Trump and that god-awful-to-watch hostage video endorsement. We had him having to eat the meatloaf because Trump told him to. Now he's going to be the Trump killer. 
No, he's not. People don't take him seriously. His unfavorables are the highest in the entire Republican field. It's in the mid-70s. It's an unbelievable number. Nobody wants Chris Christie in this race except Chris Christie and the folks in the network media news organizations that he's hoping to get another contract from, which he probably will, because you can't really get a contract years and years after the last big thing you did. So now he can say, I was a 2024 presidential candidate when he re-ups that deal. Tim Scott, 3%. Senator Tim Scott, this was another interesting one because a lot of his colleagues really like him. He's well-liked in the Senate. He's considered somebody that can get things done. He's pretty down the middle on most Republican things, and he's polling at 3%. He's not going to win either. A lot of the more establishment, moderate Republican folks really, really like Tim Scott and wish he was going to do better, but he is not going to do better. Now, something catastrophic may happen and three or four people ahead of him may fall off and people converge on him. But this is one of the people the establishment folks really, really want to do better than he is. But he's not. He's at 3%. He'll probably make the debates. He'll present well. He's a very good talker. He's very smooth in front of an audience. But this is probably about where he's going to wind up maybe a little bit better. Nikki Haley, 3%. All right. The other half of the South Carolina contingent former South Carolina governor, Nikki Haley. It's amazing. She's a former governor. Tim Scott's a sitting U.S. senator, and they're both sitting in third or fourth place or worse in their own state right now. Nikki Haley's got the same problem a lot of other Trump-adjacent people have. She worked in the admin, so it's not really going to play well that she's going to suddenly go after him, which she doesn't really do except vaguely. Now, at some point, she may have to do that, but it's going to come off weird because she was a part of the administration of the U.N. ambassador. Nikki Haley is a candidate who looks great on paper, that sounds good, that sounds like a good idea for a candidate, but when you put in the environment, you put in the political thing, you put in the fact Trump's at the top of the ticket, and put in the fact that it's been a while since she was actually in office, it's been a couple of years now, it doesn't work as much in real life. Nikki Haley's at 3% along with Tim Scott. They're going to cancel each other out in their home state of South Carolina and wind up finishing probably third and fourth, respectively, if not worse, and that will be that. Mike Pence, 7%. It is amazing that Mike Pence is running for president. Now, I'm not amazed that he's doing it because that was the only alternative he has. He's basically a pariah to wide swaths of that party. He's kind of like Asa Hutchinson, a GOP of years ago, would have probably really liked Mike Pence before he was Trump's VP. Here's the problem with Mike Pence. I don't have to pretend that the Mike Pence narrative is what it is, because it's not. Mike Pence hitched his wagon to Donald Trump and stayed on that puppy until the last possible minute, the evening of January 6th, to step off and break with him, and he still won't outwardly criticize him very much. Mike Pence made a calculated decision to buddy up to Donald Trump, and only when it became politically expedient and at the very last possible moment to really make a mess for the country, he decided to do the right thing. No, he doesn't get credit for that. He did the bare minimum. And the thing about it is the Trump people don't respect him any more than the people who are anti-Trump for doing any of that. He's a man without a country and without a party right now. I know he's a Republican. It's amazing to me he's even getting 7%. I doubt that holds up very well. We'll see what happens. But Mike Pence is not going to win this primary. He's not going to win a single state. It'll be interesting to see how long he stays in this race. Vivek Ramaswamsi. 8%. Vavik is very interesting because he's not really a presidential candidate. He's got a narrative problem like Mike Pence. I'm not going to pretend like he's a real candidate. He's not. Here's the key. He won't criticize Donald Trump. So what does that tell you? By the way, 
You can also tell all the back channels on how media interlocking works. Vivek is all over the Trump media back channels because he's on all the shows that are going to endorse Donald Trump. Why do they love him so much? Because he won't attack Donald Trump. He's a surrogate for Donald Trump in anything but name. He's in this race for his own glorification and to get his name out there and to become bigger. Now, people are going to go, well, he's already a multimillionaire. He's not doing this for the money. Yes, rich people, you might want to sit down for this. Once they have all the more money than they can spend, and he does, then they start looking for the next thing. They want power, they want notoriety, they want celebrity, they want acknowledgement on how awesome they was. That's what he's doing here. We shouldn't pretend he's doing anything else. His rhetoric is all buzzwords. He's like a walking chat GPT that just Googled a whole bunch of conservative things to say that sound good. He's about an inch deep when you start pressing him on the matters. He's got some really wacky ideas, and the more he talks, the more he's going to get exposed. Problem is, for the folks that like that sort of thing, he sure does tickle their ears, and they really like that sort of thing. So he's rising in the polls because at least he's different. He's telling them what they want to hear without telling them anything they don't want to hear, like saying anything negative about Donald Trump whatsoever. He's going to get a lot of votes siphoned off other folks, which is just going to help Donald Trump. And that's all by design, folks. Let's be adults here. Ron DeSantis, 17%. All right, a lot of media shoveling and written words about Ron DeSantis is already dead and gone. I don't think that's the case. It's not that bad. But we've got a couple months of non-movement. There's no inertia to this campaign. It's right about where it was right when it launched, a little bit less. Now, I don't think the Twitter thing in and of itself really destroyed him or was as big a deal as folks made it out to be. But it was a sign of some things to come. He's not connected. He's got some issues with messaging, but I think beyond all the Ron DeSantis stuff, because he's been an effective governor as far as getting his agenda through, he won by a huge amount in what used to be a swing state. He's pretty much made Florida red. So what's going on here? I don't think it's actually Ron DeSantis himself. I think the premise of his campaign is the problem. The idea that people want an alternative to Donald Trump and the GOP base just doesn't have any statistical facts that we can find right now, at least not in a significant enough number to make somebody not named Donald Trump in a race that Donald Trump is in be in the lead of the GOP primary, which he is by a massive amount. Now, these are national numbers. Those are going to move around. They're not super reliable until we get into the meat of the campaign, especially after we start having the debates. But if you look at the first four states, three of them, we've got pretty good polling in now. Donald Trump's up over 20 points in the three of the four that we have polling in. Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, he's running away with this race. It's not particularly close. And DeSantis, while he's sat in second place pretty steadily, he's not gaining on it. He's losing a little bit in some places. And what starts to happen is every little thing you do starts getting picked apart because there's nothing going on. Donald Trump's numbers staying steady. He's staying with a large lead. So the better copy for the media, instead of giving you all that free media on what you're doing, they're going to start nitpicking you to death. And Ron DeSantis has some things you can nitpick in this environment that's going to hurt him. I'm not saying he can't turn it around. It's just going to be a whole lot harder because now any adjustment you made is going to get played off as, oh, he's failing. So he's adjusting something instead of, oh, they're correcting a problem because some of the folks on his team, this is their first campaign or so on and so forth kind of becomes a circle and you got to be careful the circle doesn't start circling the drain Ron DeSantis is running out of time yeah it's early I say that too we're almost to August now folks Ron DeSantis is going to make a move you better do it pretty quick Donald Trump 56 percent again Donald Trump is who most of the base of the Republican Party want 
for whatever reason, whether it's relitigating 2020, whether it's the cult of personality, whether they just hate Biden, whatever it is, a huge majority of the Republican base still want Donald Trump. And even the ones supporting other candidates will tell you why I'm going to vote for Donald Trump if he's a nominee again. I just don't know that there's enough oxygen and space in this race for anybody to get close to Trump. Remember, in these primaries, with this many people in the field, you start getting around 30% in these primaries, you're going to win that thing. And Donald Trump's over those numbers already. Most political consultants will tell you on a wide poll, like the national poll, like this morning consult poll we're working on, the entire goal is to get your candidate over 50% and then don't screw it up. Donald Trump is obviously taking that to heart a little bit because he's not really campaigning that much. He's not really doing that much, but he's over 50% in almost all the national polling. Now, once again, to repeat myself, that's a little mistaken and a little bit of, you know, smoke and mirrors because until you get in the media campaign, then you got to look at the states individually for the primaries. But the fact that he's over 50% and staying there is telling. Does the Republican Party really want anybody other than Donald Trump? Sure don't look like it right now. And we'll see what happens. All right, that's the breakdown of the GOP primary as it exists in the year of our Lord 2023 for the election that's coming in 2024 here as we start to wind down July. More Hertel right after this. Welcome back to Heard Tell. Okay, he's an old favorite because he knows what's going on because when he says he heard from so-and-so, it means he talked to him. He's a congressional reporter. He's also a columnist for MSNBC. also has a great book out, We Are Not Broken. Eric Garcia is back. How are you, sir? Doing all right. How are you doing, Andrew? Also now, he can officially put it on the CV, gigging musician. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. Um, I will be sending you as a present, though, a batch of nine volt batteries, but we'll tell people about that later on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You always got to have nine volt batteries for the pedals, my friend. Yes. Uh, you work in Congress. Here's my problem. The yes. way we cover Congress is there's a bunch of people like you and your cohorts who do a lot of the shoe leather reporting because you're actually in the hallways yes. between the buildings and in the tunnels and talking to these people. And yet we have days like the other day where everybody just wants to cover these hearings, which are total, let's just call them what they are. They're clown shows and nothing's really getting accomplished. They're dog and pony shows. Meanwhile, there's a whole lot of really important stuff going on. That's got to be frustrating yes. for you guys. But as a consumer, tell us, because we can a la carte certain people, yeah. we can a la carte certain journalists, but we need to, kind of, this is a consumer side problem too. It's not just the coverage. We need to do better at what we pay attention to. Yeah. Yeah, so let's address the elephant in the room, which is that the House has. I mean, I mean and look, let's not let's also attribute blame to Congress because Congress, uh, particularly Speaker McCarthy, has selected has allowed you know the freaks to run the show. So you're right. Yes, there is the defense authorization bill, and this is going to be one of many appropriations bills that are going to have to you know uh, uh, and spending bills that are going to have to pass to prevent a government shutdown by the end of September. Um, but I think a lot of people are focusing on the um, 
hearing on Wednesday with uh, Marjorie Taylor, with with, uh, with uh, the House Oversight Committee and Hunter Biden, which is where Marjorie Taylor Greene posted some really sexually explicit photos of Hunter Biden. And then there was the Robert F. Kennedy Jr. hearing yesterday on Thursday. So, yes, it's kind of a la carte. And, yes, these are kind of sexy stories. But the big story that I think a lot of people uh, keep uh, you know, selectively, and, and and there are a lot of great reporters who are covering the right stuff. But I think what our, where our attention is going is kind of away from this really important thing because I think what you're seeing with these spending bills, particularly since Republicans took over the House of Representatives, is they're really trying to um, enforce their social agenda using government money. So, for example, I think a lot of people might know that right now in Alabama, right now uh, in the Senate, Senator Tommy Coverville is holding up military confirmations because he won't, he doesn't like a policy where the Pentagon allows people who are stationed in the military in red states to travel to other states for abortions. Uh, Republicans in this in the House basically pass an amendment to get rid of that provision. Uh, in the same way you're seeing Republicans use, uh, I mean, trying to prevent gender affirming care for veterans, I mean, or, or, or for active duty service members. So they're, so basically they're trying to do that. And then the Senate is basically saying, we are not taking this up. We're gonna write our own bill and we're loading it up. We're just gonna try to have like a normal NDAA. But a lot of Republicans are gonna spit that out because they're gonna say, this goes against everything that we negotiated in the debt limit. Yeah, Eric Garcia joining us. Let's let's just do a big picture because you can get lost in the weeds in this stuff really, really quick. Yeah. And there's a lot of great places, a lot of great resources. There's what you do. There's outlets like Punchbowl that does really good in-depth stuff yes. that I read just about every morning now. Basically, there's this NDAA bill. They're going to figure that out because that's a must-pass bill. Then yes. between now and September, there is 12 appropriation bills. Yes. So when we're saying government shutdown, it's not one bill. There's 12 bills they've got to pass to get yes. past the government shutdown. That's the next thing coming up. And these things happen in a sequence, not in a vacuum. So we got to back up. One of the things you're starting to hear is McCarthy has gotten some wins, despite what a lot of us thought. I was wrong on some of it. He's gotten some wins. The problem is he gave away a lot of stuff to get those wins. Now he's got a much steeper hill with a lot less capital because he's already given away a lot of what he has to give away. Kind of lay the land on trying to get these 12 bills passed because everybody's putting that overarching term on it, not understanding yes. that there's a 12-step process, basically. Here. Yes, there is. So one of the things that McCarthy said very explicitly in December when he was trying to get the 218 was he said, we are not going to do an omnibus spending bill. He was really mad that on the Senate side, Senator Richard Shelby and Senator Patrick Leahy basically wrote the omnibus spending bill uh, right as they were leaving the Senate. Uh, so what you're seeing now is you're going to see 12 individual spending bills go through. And I, I always had a feeling that if there was going to be a motion to vacate the chair, it would not be through the debt limit. I always felt it would be through these appropriations bills because that's where the that's where the actual challenge of abiding by these new spending cuts will, um, you know, face reality. Uh, so there are going to be ones for HHS. There's going to be ones for energy. There's going to be ones for education. There's going to be ones for, for, for basically all the 12 departments. And there basically needs to, and long short of it, is that they need to abide by it. And now that even, even though Republicans, a lot of Republicans didn't like the debt limit agreement, they're going to say you have to abide by these rules and you have to abide by uh, all of the uh, controls that we put in place to give you the speakership. 
Yeah, and the pr other problem he's got now is he can't just do failure theater on this one because the Senate has a whole lot of say on this. Yes. Um, the relationship between the GOP House and the GOP Senate, I don't know how you want to qualify it, but it's not good right now. It's I would say it's almost non-existent. Um, that bad. You would go with non-existent. You know, I, I think that now take into account the House and the Senate have, have never really liked each other. Right? Uh, there's this old saying that like, uh, an old Democratic House leader once said, Republicans are the opposition, the enemy is the Senate. Uh, <laughs> but I think that there is very much this feeling on the Senate side uh, from people like Collins and people like Murkowski uh, and people like Graham and even like McConnell, who think that a lot of the proposed defense cuts, defense budget cuts or caps on defense uh, would restrict spending uh, in ways that they don't like. They also don't like the fact that... Um, they, uh, they also want to make sure that there's uh, aid for Ukraine, whereas uh, Kevin McCarthy. So, so, so for those who don't know, this is the important part. <clears throat> and you know this, but I explain to your readers. Um, once the House and the Senate both pass their bills, they're going to go into a thing called a conference. And each leader selects members for their conference. Uh, so basically, they can come together on a bill and then they'll vote on it again. And that'll be the one that goes to the White House uh, for signature. Kevin McCarthy put Marjorie Taylor Greene has basically said, you vote on NDAA, I'll give you a conference uh, position. And she said she wants to zero out funding for Ukraine. Um, that is going to be a non-starter for a lot of Senate Republicans. Uh, there are going to be plenty of provisions that Republicans, or, or, or if they don't like the, the caps on spending uh, for defense, they are the Senate is going to let them know, is going to let the House know that no, we are not going to accept this. Yeah, we, uh, Eric Garcia joining us, reporter for the Independent. Let's go to the Democratic side for just a yes. second. Where's Schumer right now? He's got the numbers, he's got the majority, but he's also got his two most rebellious senators uh, yes. in name independent, but still caucusing with the Democrats, Christian Cinema and Joe Manchin. They're both running really tough races that they are not favored to win as of today. Yeah. So he's got to worry about them. Him and Mitch have a good working relationship, despite what you see in the media. They know how to get stuff done. They do. But this is a thin majority, and he's got some malcontents. Where, what's he looking at all this? Because we haven't really been talking about the Schumer Senate right, lately. Yeah, I, I mean, because all the uh, for all for better or for worse, all the entertainment is happening in the House. Um, the, the the thing with, with the Schumer is that I think that he is very much uh, attempting to keep the heat on Republicans. I think that Schumer. Uh, probably thinks he realizes he made a mistake by not letting having the Senate vote on a debt limit bill and allowing McCarthy to have a lot more negotiating power. Um, last go around, but I think now he's really trying to he's really trying to advertise that the Senate is not going to do this tomfoolery with the uh, NDAA. We're adults. I can work with McConnell. And to your point about his relationship with McConnell. Uh, a lot of people note that he's not as he doesn't have as acrimonious a relationship as Reed did with McConnell, uh, because those two, but but then, but both of those Reed and McConnell were professionals, but they were also political uh, pugilists, uh, and Schumer is definitely a, a fighter in his own sense. But I think the the the, the main thing that you're seeing with, with Schumer is that he's trying at his at his core 
to say we're gonna we're gonna do we're doing our job we're not having these dog and pony shows and we are also going to be confirming just a bunch of nominees now the problem for schumer right now is uh you mentioned joe manchin manchin has so far not announced whether he'll seek re-election but he's of course really mad about the implementation of the ira we're approaching the one-year anniversary of the deal that he brokered with schumer so as a result you're seeing uh the, the 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 chuck wagon had to deal with with mccall with 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 mansion opposing a lot of nominees he's come out against julie sue uh who's biden's uh labor secretary nominee um you, you've seen him come out against uh i mean you've seen him vote against a few judicial nominees so you're so you're seeing that and then on top of that cinema you know you mentioned she's running a couple race cinema hasn't even announced whether she'll run again so, but uh, but she's being outspent, or, or I should say, outraised by Ruben Gallego down in uh, down in Arizona. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find the Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Yeah, you just mentioned Biden too, Eric Garcia joining us. There's been some shakeup in the Biden team who right. handles the way they deal with Congress, both the Senate and the House. Yes. There was criticism there. They brought in some new people. They brought in someone who's actually pretty got a pretty decent relationship with Kevin McCarthy, at least on a working level. 
Is there any hope that this is going to change? Again, the election overshadows all this because, look, especially in the House, they legislate one year and they run for office one year. This is all yes. you're going to get, Adams, whatever they're going to do this year. Yeah. The Biden White House has obviously changed tactics a little bit here. Is that going to make any difference? Is it noticeable? It will make some difference, I think, on the margins. But again, the House has just a lot more power because the House has the power of the purse. And that's just how the Constitution is set up. But I think that they are, I think that at the end, the I think the Biden White House, there, there was a lot. I think they took some. I think they listened to some of the criticism from people saying that McCarthy ran circles around the media wise. But I think that they thought that uh, during the debt limit negotiations, they felt we can't speak too much because we want McCarthy's people. We want Republicans to accept whatever deal that we do. So we don't want to you know do a victory lap um, and then have Republicans feel like they're eating dirt. Um, whereas uh, but I think that there was almost kind of this implicit understanding that the White House will stay quiet. Um, so that House Republicans, House Democrats could bail out McCarthy. In the same respect, I think that they're going to, uh, as you said, it's not going to make much of, much of a difference now. It's really going to make a difference once the election is over, come December, when, uh, December 2024, when they have to come to an agreement on raising the debt limit. Yeah, Eric Garcia. Okay, big question. We don't know all the backroom deals that were involved, but we do know there's pressure. The Republican caucus wants to impeach somebody, whether it's Mayorkas, yes. Garland, a lot of them want Biden. McCarthy's smart enough. He doesn't really want to go down the Biden road. I think he wanted to throw him uh, Mayorkas. I think it's kind of trending maybe towards Garland here. What's the talk on impeachment? Because the Republicans are basically screaming, we're going to impeach somebody or we're going to take somebody out. Is that what you're hearing there, too? Yes. So this is the big divide that you're seeing. So <clears throat> incidentally enough, last month I was talking with Marjorie Taylor Greene, and this was during the divide over uh, whether Lauren Boebert or Marjorie Taylor Greene's uh, vote to impeach Biden would come through. But Marjorie Taylor Greene basically said, hey, look, this is the price. This is my price for voting for McCarthy for speaker. And this is my price for voting for that debt limit bill. So I think that at this point, it's starting to lean more toward Garland, just given the indictments uh, against President Trump and against, um, I mean, I mean, there was the, the first indictment that happened in June. And then there's now it looks like he was he's the recipient of a target letter that uh, for his actions on January 6th. So it looks like it's leaning more toward Garland these days. Uh, I think that McCarthy and Republican leadership realized that a Biden impeachment is walking, is forcing their frontliners to walk the plank. And your job as speaker, you have a lot of jobs as speaker, but one of your main jobs is to protect your majority. And you don't, you only force your frontliners to take so many tough votes. As possible. And, uh, I mean, that was something that Pelosi learned when she had the vote on Obamacare. Uh, and I would actually argue Waxman Markey was a bigger uh, issue for a lot of frontline Democrats back in 2010. Uh, but, but in the same respect, he also recognizes that he has to do what he can to protect these frontliners, but he doesn't have the margins that Pelosi did or that even Ryan did or even Boehner did back in the days. Yeah, real quick along those same lines, though. Is this impeachment expungement nonsense actually going to make it to the floor or not? Because McCarthy looked like he, he said it one way and then he said it another way. There was some coverage of that. They're not going to really try to do something that's that much of a ready-made campaign ad, are they? Uh, that would be it. That would, I think McCarthy recognizes that would be an electoral disaster. 
Um, there are many criticisms of Kevin McCarthy, many of them I've made, but one of them is that he actually does uh, he does keep an eye on what how districts are working and how districts are acting. Uh, and he's a, he's a, he's an absolute political junkie. Um, but I think that he recognizes that this would be suicide for frontliners and his frontliners and people like uh, the, the you know the, the moderates or the problem solvers have said this will kill us. So I don't think he would do. I don't think that he would go down that route. Even though someone like Elise Stefanik would very much like to, and uh, and Marjorie Taylor Greene would very much like to. But I think he's. I think that he's recognizing. He's saying. He's trying to do with the wink and a nod, saying, "I would like to do this, but we just can't do it." And I think that you're seeing that. And I think that's the way he's going to split the difference. Yeah, and uh, walking that tightrope will get real interesting if uh, Trump becomes the nominee. So we'll keep an eye on that. Eric Garcia carving out a few minutes in his very busy schedule for us. We appreciate it. Let folks know where they can keep up with you because you're writing at The Independent. You're writing for MSNBC. You're covering Congress. You're playing music. You've got a book out that's in paperback now. Tell folks where they can keep up with you, my friend. You can friend. follow me on Twitter at Eric M. Garcia. You can follow me on threads at Eric M. Garcia 14. You can follow me now. You can follow me on Blue Sky, Eric M. Garcia. You can buy my book, We're Not Broken, Change the Autism Conversation. And, uh, and yeah, I, I, you know, it's, it's always great. You do great work, sir. Appreciate your time. We'll keep having you on. Welcome back. Talk soon. See you. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Let's go over to India real quick and talk some Indian elections. Why should we pay attention to them? Well, you better. Uh, for those of you that haven't been paying attention or maybe haven't heard yet, India is the largest democracy in the world. Not only that is, and depending on which version of the story and statistics you use, it's either already happened, it's happening now, or it's getting ready to happen. India is going to pass China in population. This is a growing country, and to use a sports analogy, their ceiling's a lot higher than China. China and a lot of their policy stuff they're doing right now, both foreign policy and economic policy, is they know they've got a demographic problem. No matter, even though they have such a massive population, they're trying to get rich before they get old. Their population is getting old, which means economically they're getting towards the ceiling of what they can do economically. India, with its massive population, is nowhere close. It has a lot more potential. So think about it like if you're talking about a draft pick for a sports team. You can get somebody who's really big and good right now, but they're right at their limit and they're going to start tailing off. Or you can get this upcoming country that has a ton of potential if they handle it right. That's where India is at right now. Now, I don't know a lot about India politics, but we're going to reach out to some folks we have because we need to start learning about this stuff. It's part of how the world works. India being that big and India being a democracy, even though they got some internal issues, which we'll get into some other time, they are a very important ally to America for a lot of reasons. They're positioning in the world geographically. They're positioning in the world with their population. All sorts of good reasons for us to make sure our friendship with India is strong. So we need to pay attention to what's going over from time to time. One of the reasons I like our friends at elections-daily.com, they've been on the show many times over the years. I read their stuff all the time. This one's from Farron Sarif. Um, talking about something interesting here. Now, the ruling party over there, the uh, NDA. That's uh, Prime Minister Maldi's party. 
the opposition groups have done what you do when you start getting desperate because the uh, NDA is going to probably win their third term here coming up in these elections. So all the other opposition parties, or at least 26 of the major ones, are banding together to try to form a unified front to go against the ruling party. And they came up with an acronym of India. Yeah, I know it's not terribly terribly creative and we won't go through all this but i'm going to read a few pieces of this you can please link i'm going to link to it in the Substack notes and in the uh notes on the program make sure you look all this up and read through it uh the ruling uh india where the d stands for democratic was a bit of a problem so the main highlight of the two-day meeting was the forming of the name of the alliance after some discussion the opposition parties formally named their alliance india i-n-d-i-a Indian National Development Inclusive Alliance. I know it's not terribly creative, but what are you going to do? Originally, the word development in the alliance was supposed to be named democratic. This was rejected because the opposition parties did not want it to sound familiar to the ruling NDA, where the D stands for democratic. Other names that were proposed in the naming of the alliance was Indian's main front, We Are India, Indian Progressive Front. However, the name India was formally decided upon by rule. Rahul Gandhi and the 26 opposition parties agreed to this. Um, Sharif goes on, he writes quite in depth here about where they're going to do good in certain regions, where India might, the India Alliance might have some success, where they may not, especially in some of the more populated areas. Um, we won't go through all this, but I just want to make you aware of it. Countries like India, you need to pay attention to, because this, for the next 20, 30 years, they're dynamic, they're on the rise. China's going to start hitting their ceiling and then start somewhat of a decline. We know the American system, we've kind of got a mess on our hands. We know Russia's got their hands full and is diminished because of the Ukrainian war, and China's enveloped with that. These are all moving pieces we need to pay attention to so we can understand the world we live in. So go to elections-daily.com, read about this upcoming election in India, our ally over there, growing part of the world that we need to keep an eye on. We'll do more Hertel right after this. Back to Hertel. Okay, if you're new to the program, we always try to end on an uplifting or encouraging note or a good piece of news or some charity work or food or something good or flowers or touching grass or something like that to end the program because we got to talk about heavy topics here. It's what we got to do. I like this story. This is from the Washington Post a little while back, but it's still good. This came out June 29th. Sydney Page wrote this for the Washington Post. We will link to it in the Substack notes. A California man and his wife had recently moved into a new apartment building in San Francisco where they met a neighbor who is a Hindu priest. The priest told him about an organization he volunteers, Bangladesh Relief, which provides food, clothing, and essential supplies to underprivileged people in northern Bangladesh, a place that really needs it, by the way. Good place to send some charity money to. The man decided to donate to the priest GoFundMe campaign and settled on $150, thinking that was about the right amount to do. Shortly after making his donation to GoFundMe, though, Michael received a notification from his credit card company warning him of a suspiciously large transaction. He swiped it, and to his horror, found out to him the GoFundMe amount was $15,000 and 41, not 150. 
It was just a complete typo screw-up, he said. I was so bewildered. Soon it all made sense. Michael's credit card number had started with the four and the one, and clearly he'd accidentally been typing his credit card information in when his cursor was still in the donation box. Hey, who hadn't done that, right? Michael called GoFundMe support line, and they all worked it out. They refunded the money, and it would be solved in three to seven business days. Still, it was a major complication. A $15,000 donation, which more than doubled the total amount raised at the time, would remain on the GoFundMe page until it was processed, which would take time. And I said, no, that's a problem because now people are going to think they're not going to want to give. Washington Post. But before he had a chance to do that, he started receiving Facebook notifications and messages from Shohan Chandra, the charity's Bangladesh-based program manager, thanking him profusely for the huge donation. That man sent me a video of himself from Bangladesh, surrounded by dozens of impoverished and hungry food, he wrote in a Reddit post. I started swiping through the man's messages and picture after picture of the poor Bangladeshis thanking me for my kind donation. The priest and his colleagues in Bangladesh were blown away, which was far beyond what they'd ever received in the past. We were floored, said Dunham, that's the priest, who became involved in the charity years ago. Looking through the photos, he felt ter- Michael felt terrible. His heart sank. It was a hefty donation, and even though he contributed the 150 originally planned again, he wanted to do more. I felt so bad for the mistake I made, he said. Once his original contribution was refunded, he upped it to $1,500. Dunham was understanding about the accident and grateful for Michael's still significant donation, which he told him would have made a significant impact. Any donation, any size goes a long way, the priest explained. The charity's leaders, too, were thankful and were very understanding. That's still a lot of money for us, Chandra explained. Millions of the poorest, most needy people in Bangladesh, where more than 20% of the population lives below that nation's poverty line. We are really thankful, he said, calling Michael the most kind-hearted person. Although Michael had told family and friends about the typo tale, he decided to share the saga publicly on Reddit after Durham recently told him the organization was desperately needing more funds. It was the least I could do to take this post the story online and see if I could inspire other people to donate to the cause, Michael said. Little did he know that the story would be seen far and wide, garnering more than $120,000 for Bangladesh relief in the span of only a few weeks, about eight times the mistaken donation. As Michael posted, gained momentum on Reddit and other social media, including YouTube, where some popular channels up-channeled it, more than 3,700 people contributed because of his post. We're astonished, said Dunham, that we could have this many people have the heart to share what they can. We've had a wave of support that has superseded anything we've attempted to do so far. When people donated, they left lighthearted comments like, we're all here to make up for Michael's mistake. Many others also drew parallels between Michael's mistake and the Office Scott's Tots episode, in which character Michael Scott could not keep his promise to pay for the college tuition of an entire third grade class. Definitely a funny coincidence that we are both Michaels. So much fun reading the comments and couldn't stop refreshing the GoFundMe page, Michael said. We love that Michael's story inspired others to rally behind this fundraiser and multiply his generosity. Now Bangladesh Relief is planning to expand its services beyond food relief, clothing, and supplies to include medication for those in need. The fund will also go towards supporting local Lorthons. By these donations, our programs are going into a good position. Uh, Chandra explained the people of Charity Serves are already reaping the benefits of the increased funding because they can plan ahead. They are very grateful, and you can see it to everyone who contributed. Chandra said, we are all very grateful. This is unforgettable. There's more to this piece. There's a lot of pictures in here, people in Bangladesh holding up thanks Reddit signs and the bags of food. I love this. I know these. this was a Hindu priest, but um, in our Baptist faith, at least, we talked about things not being meant for good, but God figures that stuff out anyway. I'm glad it did here. 
That'll do it for Herd Tell. Uh, we do have new stuff. If you, this is your first program in a while, since this is our first program in a while, uh, herdtell.substack.com, one-stop shopping for everything we are doing, whether it's my writing, my media appearances, some of the archive stuff. We're going to slowly start updating the old archive herd tells on there there's over 600 of them so it's going to take a little bit of time we don't want to crash everything we'll add those in we'll also be bringing some of my old writing there but it's all going to be one-stop shopping especially with twitter which has been our primary source of social media and peer-to-peer advertising getting very unstable lately um we want to make sure we have a one-stop shopping you can sign up it's free all the content on the Substack is completely free uh we are good baptists though if you want to donate we're not going to tell you no there's a way to do that but you will get all the content we put on there for free for subscribing straight into your inbox and you don't have to worry about social media or anything else getting in the way of you getting heard tell also give you an option to share and we'd really appreciate it if you do that twitter um as long as it's still functioning you can find us on there Make sure, however you're consuming this program and getting heard tell, whether it's on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, any of the podcasting platforms, if you're watching this on YouTube, however you're joining us, we greatly appreciate it. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on those platforms, even if you're listening on multiple platforms. That really lets us know where you're at, how we can keep getting you what we do to you. We really appreciate it also. Since this doesn't cost you anything but a click, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd use another click and share us with somebody else. So it's been good to get back. Really missed you. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time, as we get back to doing some herd tells. Until we see you again, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. And wherever you and yours are, we'll see you again next time for more herd tells. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, 
exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.